You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management archaeology and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 129 for January 31st, 2018. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk to some special guests from the Society for Black Archaeologists about the 2018 Society for Historical Archaeology annual meeting held this past January in New Orleans and other issues related to the profession. So bust out your conference programs and notes because the CRM Archaeology podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today from the CRM Archaeology Podcast, anyway, is Bill in California. How's it going, Bill? Pretty good. Yeah. So you are fresh off the uh, Society for Historical Archaeology meetings in New Orleans. And in fact, you spent uh, quite a bit of time down there because it was a little little vacation for you guys. And um, that's what we're going to talk about. I didn't get a chance to go to the SCHAs this year. So Bill is pretty much going to lead this conversation off um, and then also talk about some uh, some research that he was part of over the uh, over the, the holiday break uh, kind of time frame. And we're going to go from there. So, Bill, why don't you introduce what we're going to talk about and introduce our guest for the day? Yeah, no problem. Uh, so, yes, as Chris mentioned, I was at the um, SHA uh, conference. I it's too bad you weren't there because I would say it's probably one of the best ones I've gone to in 10 years or so. And it's nice. not just because the conference was great, but also because it's in New Orleans. So if you've never been to New mm-hmm. Orleans, you should go right away. Uh, I guess unless you're listening to this in the summertime, then maybe you should hesitate. Uh, delay. You know? <laughs> but January in New Orleans was great. It was a little bit cold, but um, there's a lot of things going on. And I was there for New Year's, and I was also there for the kickoff of Mardi Gras. So I got to see some of the best part of the year so uh and then and then in the midst of that there was an archaeology conference but along uh, along with me at the sha this last year are my two good friends ayana flewellen and justin dunavant uh they're with the society of black archaeologists but they're also historical archaeologists um justin is a um, researcher at uc santa cruz so he's here in california so we both froze because being you know out west in california it's you know 50 <laughs> 60 degrees during the day uh but ayana flewellen she's moved recently to new orleans so i guess she was used to it <laughs> so ayana uh, ayana and justin uh, can you please introduce yourselves a little bit better sure um hi my name is ayana flewellen i'm a phd candidate at the university of texas at austin i'm in the last year of my program there writing my dissertation Um, I focus on sartorial practices of self-making amongst African-American women post-emancipation in Texas. Nice. Um, Yeah. And I'm um, Justin Dunavant. I'm currently a postdoctoral fellow at UC Santa Cruz. Uh, I'm working at the Archaeological Research Center under Dr. Cameron Monroe. Um, And we're working on the Estate Little Princess archaeology site, which we can talk about in a little bit. Um, Ayana and I are also co-founders of the Society of Black Archaeologists. Nice. Hey, let me jump in real quick. Justin, were you at the uh, photogrammetry seminar that was put on by Codify about a year and a half ago at UC Santa Cruz with um, uh, Cameron? No, I was not. I actually joined UC Santa Cruz about six months ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was down there for that. We um, we actually put on this little photogrammetry thing for the for the um, I think for the grad students. So anyway, that's a uh, oh, that's that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Bill. 
yeah, I guess um, I guess we'll start off with impressions of the SHA. First of all, um, just off the top of my head, one of the things I noticed most about this historical archaeology conference was the amount of uh, community engagement and public outreach discussions. When I've, I, I mean, it's not like I go back a million years or something like that, but you know, ten years ago, ago or so at the SHA, in a lot of ways, it kind of mirrored the SAA in that it was just you know, artifacts from New Sweden, so-and-so, new insights on 1750s, you know, colonial. And so all those ones were just, you know, people talking about their project and how that adds to archaeology. But now there was almost always a consistent plug in a lot of the symposia. I mean, if it wasn't in every single talk, it was in, uh, you know, every other one about how communities were engaged and communities were connected with, uh, you know, and I wouldn't say that every single one of them was a success story. I felt like there's still quite a bit of uh, um, colonialism or, you know, whatever else. Uh, uh, I can't, It's hard to describe, but uh, a sense that, you know, we're the ones who are projecting the work upon these folks and they're, um, they're accepting it to a greater or lesser extent. I mean, some of it was we reached out to this group. They were there, but they didn't do what we wanted. So it's too bad. I guess we weren't a success, but we'll try again. So they're, you know, people are just getting into this whole thing. They're not yet um, understanding that connecting with communities is not just telling people what to do and then assessing how well they do it. It's actually connecting with them. But uh, overall, though, I did see where it seems like maybe we've come uh, a long way when it comes to community work. But because I was in so many other public archaeology and community things, I missed out on all of the anti-racism stuff. So I know uh, Ayana and Justin... You guys um, participated in that. Uh, maybe you can tell me what I missed. Yeah. Ayana, do you want to talk about that one? I came into the uh, to SHA a little bit late, and so I, I entered the, the talk a little bit later. Um, sure. I actually wasn't able to attend the, um, the GMAX anti-racism training that they had Saturday morning, um, but I did attend the talk that... Um, the panel that was had uh, around like 3 p.m. Friday. Um, and it was a really, it, I thought it was really interesting in terms of how people are really trying to um, combat anti-racism within SHA. Um, I think it sounded like it was a bit of a struggle to um, have it resonate outside of the actual conference itself or the organization, but within the um, so I think those are my sort of two takeaways. It's like, yes, um, thinking about the sort of historical um, entrenchedness that anti-racism has within the Society for Historical Archaeology, um, which is seen just simply within its membership um, and the lack of diversity within its membership. But then also thinking about how the field itself can become a field dedicated to anti-racism. So it's not just a conversation held at conferences, but a conversation held within anthropology departments, um, within granting agencies as well, that really centers, this is how you do ethical work. So, Is, is there any talk, uh, just to interject here, is there any talk about um, is, is it all centered around like academic stuff? And like you mentioned, you know, grants and things like that. Um, I'm in the cultural resource management world. So I'm in the professional archaeology, you know, not professional, but um, contract archaeology. And uh, is there any talk about dealing with people in, in that sense, um, you know, and, and instructing them on how to, you know, not be racist, <laughs> what they do? <laughs> Within that session, no. 
um, within that session, it was pri- it was primarily folks that were in academia or they were working with cultural heritage um, facilities, but none that were in cultural research management. And maybe someone could correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like a t- it seems like a talk very much entrenched mm-hmm. within academia and then these sort of like tangential spaces of these academic conferences. When we all know that the majority of archaeological work being conducted is by cultural research management firms. So it needs to expand in that area, certainly. There, there were a few uh, people that work in CRM that were there, and they did talk a little bit about um, some of the difficulty in recruiting and retaining um, staff. Um, at least one person, I forget which firm she was associated with or worked with, but she um, she specifically mentioned the fact of trying to help out and uh, this effort to sort of create diversity in the field. Um, I think a lot of people recognize that a lot of it's structural, in the sense that nobody or very few people are intentionally trying to keep people out. It's more so the structures have been set up in a way where if we don't reach out to these groups, they'll never fill in the ranks. So I think that was a major part of the discussion as well. I, I think personally, another problem with uh, with cultural resource management is a lot of it, it, a lot of people in, say, say management type positions at a firm. And I'm only saying that because those are tend to be the more permanent ones. Um a lot of the, a lot of times they're filled from the people who are working in the temporary positions, you know, like any company you, you promote from within because you know them and, and things like that happen. But the the biggest problem is they, they might have a, a big, a big push to be more diverse and hire, you know, and search uh, diversity type populations for their employees. However, as a, as a business owner myself, when a project comes around and the BLM says, okay, you guys need to be in the field yesterday and you have to hire the first 10 mm-hmm. people that apply, <laughs> you know, it makes it difficult to be selective, I guess. So you take whoever walks in the door and a lot of times it, it seems like they don't have the the time to really search through applications and find, you know, find people, that, I, even quality people. And that's a different instruction, different conversation entirely. You get on projects where it's just a random assortment of people because they had to hire who they had to hire. And that's that's another problem, though, in CRM. I think it's a it's a big problem. But just wanted to to put that out there. Yeah, I, I agree, and I also think that uh, going on um, just in structural nature of it, uh, in my experience, I've been spending quite a bit of time trying to find individuals uh, who are interested in doing archaeology, uh, not just African American, but uh, specifically Native American, Hispanic, other folks that I know that are uh, in anthropology undergrad and then try to get them to go on further but it's not like uh you know each student is their own uh, sentient person who has their own goals in life and you can't really mm-hmm. puppet individuals up from the bottom and in some ways i kind of feel like that's the that's kind of the the mentoring approach that a lot of people uh, in academia are kind of taking that we can find you know if you find a minority okay well this person we need to mentor her and get her you know, all the skills and everything. Whereas um, if you just focus on mentoring all of your undergrads to get ready to go to CRM and, and all the diverse populations and everyone uh, see that they can possibly make a job, because really that's the biggest thing. And I, I've written before about this on the blog. Minorities, you know, me, everybody else, we have a lot of pressure to survive and to uh, do well after we finish college because there's no going home to anyone's house. There's no, you know, basement or whatever. And I know a lot of people out there who are white will say, well, I didn't have anywhere to go. I also had no choice. I had to do this as well. Yeah, well, that's definitely true. But when it comes to archaeology, 90-something percent of all the people who are undergrads or definitely graduate students 
are, uh, you know, European American. So if all of those people have no recourse, then that means that only a few individuals who are non-white um, have this are in the same position. You know what I'm saying? So if you're not white, then you have motivation to go into the careers that say, well, you're going to make a trillion dollars. Okay, so go into software design or go into uh, uh, medicine or law or some other field where you're going to make a lot of money because that's how you're going to do well. And there's a lot of motivation and there's not a lot of support coming from home for you to do archaeology or for you to do art or dance or something else like that, right? So I know it's not the same if you're European-American, if you're white, and your parents say, no, you're going to go into law. Well, there's already a bunch of, you know, white lawyers, but there's not going to be any, you know, African-American or Native American or anything like that. And archaeology suffers from that to a, a high degree because it's so difficult to make money. And if you get into CRM, you're going to struggle for years and years as a field tech, and it's hard. And then everybody at home is going to say, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? You need to get a job. You need to get something that's worthwhile. You need to get out. And we've talked about on the blog before about folks or on this podcast before about folks who left archaeology and money was the number one factor. It didn't matter what race they were, money was the number one factor. But when you're starting mm -hmm. off in a situation where it's the deck is so far skewed to one ethnicity, then the results that you get are, are hyperinflated. Yeah, I think we came across that issue uh, last year when there was a mid-Atlantic firm that approached the Society of Black Archaeologists, uh, specifically asking for an archaeologist with specialty in African diaspora um, in, in the mid-Atlantic to work on a number of sites that they had already secured contracts for. And we couldn't help them because the people who we thought, you know, would fill that position had already have, you know, they already have successful careers. And the other people that we think, you know, might be able to do it in the future just didn't have enough CRM experience. So. Yeah, and it's, it's when, when Justin says that, the number of people that we could think of were like two people in the whole country. Yeah. <laughs> got all the thousands of people that we knew, we knew five or, you know, I knew probably five or six white people that had good experience with African-American, African diaspora archaeology. They had graduate degrees. They had done CRM. They knew what they were doing. But the companies were reaching out like, hey, we know that we can hire someone white, but we would like to find someone who's African-American since we're working in African-American communities. This is a perfect chance for someone who has the right credentials to get a job because essentially we don't know anyone. And then when Justin and I scoured our you know database of people we knew, there was you know maybe one or two people who could possibly do it, and they already all had a job. So you know, we recommended, I recommended good people that I knew and I don't know who they hired in the end, but, you know, there just was not anyone of that race that could do the work. They just didn't have the experience. So building capacity and expanding, I mean, that's been something that the SHA has been talking about. And actually today or uh, last week, I saw that come to fruition at the Society of Black Archaeologists meeting, subgroup meeting there. There's a photo of us all now. And if, actually, if you look at the photo each year, at the SHA, most of the black archaeologists that uh, work in the United States, at least, are SHA members or uh, most of the people that we know that are African-Americans that do archaeology are also in our own friend group. So if you're listening to this podcast and you know someone who's black that does archaeology, that doesn't know about us, email us because we're all at the same conference. We don't know of others. <laughs> but there, but at the conference, uh, there's a photo. We, we had a, a short meeting one evening and there's a photo of us and there was how many folks 20 something 25 25 
25 people that went to the SBA meeting. And I think the first meeting years ago in Baltimore, there was how many? Eight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Are, are there other similar societies for other groups, for other, you know, minority groups? Not just the Society for Black Archaeologists? Like, is there, you know, I'm trying to think. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know of any. I think the uh, so far the best effort forward that we've seen has been um, GMAC, the Gender Minority Affairs Committee within the SHA, um, in terms of identifying a group, a population, and trying to specifically, you know, recruit or lobby or advocate on behalf of mm-hmm. it. But in terms of a nationwide or international scope, we haven't come across any. Well, I think there's a Society okay. of Black Anthropologists, right? Mm-hmm. It's much yeah. larger and, and much more organized. It's a subgroup of the AAA, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Uh, we're going to transition in the second segment to talking about some of uh, some of the research you guys have done. But uh, is there any other takeaways in the last minute and a half of this segment that you guys want to mention from the SHAs? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'll say that the SHA is um, cha- the the stuff that's being discussed and the practices that the folks that are members of the Society for Historical Archaeology, the things that they're doing in the world are, are changing. Mm. And there's more of an emphasis of not just, you know, diversifying or, or addressing discrimination and racism. There's also a, a realization that if we don't connect with communities, mm-hmm. uh, uh, archaeology is gone. So uh, you're starting to see this, uh, you know, meme or this uh, ethos trickling throughout the entire organization. And it's not coming from the, the people at the top. The people at the top are part of it, but it's coming from the practitioners. So I, I feel like when I go, I mean, I go to conferences, not, you know, every single one, but when I go to conferences, you'll see my eyes roll back in my head when people start to talk about artifacts or whatever, you know. But if they start talking about people and communities, then I actually listen. And I feel like at the um, historical archaeology pr- uh, conference, there's more of a discussion of people and uh, community and the artifacts and the archaeology are added on as, you know, part of the overall idea of addressing social justice or uh, environmental advocacy. I mean, it, to me, it seems like it's a different thing than the SAA. But I haven't been since the time that uh, you and I went, Chris, you know, Austin. But now, now that I work at Berkeley, they're yeah. saying, well, you, you know, you should really think about joining the SAA again. If you see me at the SAA <laughs> again, ask me if I feel that way about the SAA. Because I haven't in the past. <laughs> Nice. All right. Well, we are going to go to break here shortly. Uh, this has been a great discussion about the SHA. Uh, come back on the other side of the break, and we're going to transition to uh, to a couple other things. Uh, in the meantime, go to arcpodnet.com forward slash members to see how you can support this podcast and the Archaeology Podcast Network uh, by becoming a member and uh, getting some of our, our little extras and our swags. Plus, I have access to a 3D printer now, so we might be 3D printing up some really fun stuff to send to our members. So, all right. Back in a second. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high-quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members.
Welcome back to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 129, and we are here with Justin Dunavant and Ayana Fowellen of the Society of Black Archaeologists. And I would like to talk a little bit about our December field trip, a field visit to uh, St. Croix to work, uh, do some damage assessment work at the Estate Little Princess, which is the site that the uh, SBA has been working on for the last couple of years. So uh, Ayana, Justin, and I went down there, but uh, they're the experts. So Ayana, you guys tell me, tell the listeners a little bit more about what we did there this last December. Um, yeah, just to give a brief sort of background on the project itself. Um, it started in 2016 when Justin Donovan and I were approached by Diving with a Purpose um, to aid in the construction of a maritime terrestrial field school under the umbrella of the Slave Rats Project. Um, so since 2016, Justin and I, along with um, uh, other colleagues, Dr. Alicia Odewale, a assistant professor at the University of Tulsa, and Dr. Alexander Jones, the director for archaeology in the community, a nonprofit organization based in the D.C. area, um, went down to St. Croix a number of times and finally had our inaugural field season this past summer Um which I think was a, a wild success. But the project itself is a community-centered project um, focusing on sustainable archaeology and community capacity building. So with that in mind, this past trip that we took in December with Bill White, Justin Donovan, and myself, um, centered on the impact of, hurricane, of hurricanes Arma and Maria, um, to our site and then also to our community collaborators as well. So part of that um, trip was not only assessing our site, but assessing the needs of our community members. Yeah, we went down there, uh, Justin, Ayana, and I, and characteristic of all winter travel, um, there was uh, Dr. Odawale was unable to make it because, you know, several weather really, no, actually, I think there was a fire at the Miami airport, so she couldn't make the flight <laughs> down, right? But we, we all went to St. Croix, and um, they uh, I I feel like it's a community that's healing, but mm -hmm. it's actually amazing to see what's going on there uh, as far as historic preservation. Uh, I've never seen a place where people are taking it upon themselves to uh, preserve buildings and sites. And it's like uh, Ayana and Justin and I just kind of fell into this existing system that they already had where they already were doing many things. And now archaeology is part of what they're doing there. Mm -hmm. But as mm -hmm. far as healing from the uh, the hurricane, I mean, the damage was extensive to the infrastructure, uh, power. I, I still think there's people there that don't have power. When we were there, there were folks who had just gotten their power back, and, and they'd been out of power for about four months. Mm -hmm. so in the news, there's a lot of talk about... Um, uh, Puerto Rico, which is rightfully, you know, that needs to be part of the discussion, but I don't think very many people are talking about what happened to the Virgin Islands. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I didn't hear anything about, honestly, uh, you know, being here in Reno, I, it's all Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. That's all you ever hear in the news over here. So Yeah, and I mean, uh, as far as those territories in that area, Puerto Rico is kind of the hub because it has the most people, uh, it's the biggest island, but, uh, you know, St. Thomas and St. Croix, they also got hit hard. Yeah, and I think of St. John as well, which was completely decimated yeah. from Hurricane Arma and Maria. Um, so I think when I when I hear about what's happening in the Caribbean, my first mind goes to the U.S. Virgin Islands, and I, I'm biased. It's clearly because I work there. Um, 
But the sort of lack of dialogue around what's happening in St. Croix, what's happening in St. Thomas and St. John, I think it's really indicative of um, how capitalism and how income really influence who's getting um, financial resources and who gets centered in that. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, I'm still actually, you know, part of our trip this last uh, December was to do a damage assessment of uh, the estate little princess. But in the process, we also did assessments of a couple other um, places that are either going to be uh, part of historic preservation. Like I said, this isn't, you know, uh, the National Trust down there that's doing the work. It's people who actually live there that care about these buildings. They're the ones who are finding the money to rehabilitate them. They're the ones who are teaching individuals to do artisanal uh, architecture and carpentry to rehabilitate these buildings. And now uh, with us, they're the ones who are finding ways to get archaeologists down there to do archaeology on um, historic properties. So uh, uh, this isn't really a CRM-motivated thing or people who live in a neighborhood who really want to get their you know subdivision on the National Register for the tax breaks. This is people who care about their heritage and are finding ways to uh, to uh, document that stuff. But we went down to do damage assessments, and um, there was definitely a FEMA presence. You know, they were working diligently uh, every day to get the internet and power and everything back up the cell system. But I didn't uh, I didn't run into anyone doing um, historic preservation work or documenting sites. So we documented our sites, but I'm kind of having a problem figuring out what the nexus is for historic preservation because I know that um, the Virgin Islands and, and Puerto Rico, they, they have to comply with the National Historic Preservation Act because they're U.S. territories. Um, so in that situation, the, the um, memos that came out uh, as far as FEMA directives in response to Hurricane Katrina in 2006 are kind of supposed to guide the response. So I'm trying to figure out who, who's the one who's coordinating or in charge of the historic preservation response on St. Croix. Um, and then where, where does the law begin and end? Because it's not necessarily a United State. So I'm trying to figure out what their obligations under Section 106 are because they're rebuilding the infrastructure and all that stuff has to be FCC compliant. And, uh, Towers are going in and uh, telephone poles are going up. And I didn't see where they were bulldozing whole neighborhoods like they did, uh, you know, in the wake of Katrina from, from mold. But I mean, I think that's going to be another discussion. Uh, we heard that over half of their public schools got damaged, um, from the, uh, the hurricane and have either water damage or mold. So I don't know if they're going to just destroy the school and rebuild it or what's going on, but. There's definitely a federal nexus, but I couldn't figure out how CRM was being incorporated in that. Uh, Bill, is it is it just that they're still in like serious disaster management mode and, and trying to keep people alive, and they haven't really they haven't really gone down that route to pre- to really looking at preservation of the existing resources and things like that as they're building new ones and tearing down old ones? Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know. Uh, you know, that's definitely that's a very yeah. realistic um, response. Yes. Uh, they haven't gotten to really, you know, uh, destroying homes or uh, doing the full assessment of historic properties when it comes to mold and, and water damage because they are trying to get things back up. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, it's not like uh, 
Mad Max there or Haiti after the earthquake. God forbid that it's like that. But at any rate, um, you know, they have water and things. Many people have power. Uh, Thousands of people just left the island. And I don't know if they're going to come back or what. Uh, Students who are there are, they're not going to really get a summer because their schools got damaged. So kids are going half days uh, and they're not going to get out of public school until the, I think the, um, end of June, I believe, or the end of, end of July, I think. So they're only going to get a few weeks of school because they don't uh-huh. have any schools to go to. Uh, but so, so all those things are happening and you're right. Maybe they haven't gotten to historic preservation. I always, I always envision mm-hmm. like a Delta force of archaeologists and architectural historians like coming down. <laughs> but I know that never happens. We kind of just nice. come in a rental car. Yeah, St. Croix is a unique situation, too, in terms of heritage and the hurricane, uh, in part because a lot of resources traditionally were being funneled through Puerto Rico. So when Puerto Rico got shut down, St. Croix got shut down just off of that strength alone. Um, and then after the hurricane, there continued to be rains, which, of course, increased and exacerbated the mold. Um, and then finally, you know, for those who haven't been to St. Croix, a lot of buildings in St. Croix are historic buildings. So whether you're downtown or in some cases in people's own private houses and neighborhoods, they've repurposed some of these buildings for, you know, various uses. So when it talks about rebuilding, it's, you know, they have to address the cultural heritage component because it's a direct, it's directly impacting where they live and work on a daily basis. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this whole rebuilding and cooperation sort of works over the, the next couple of years. And I just wanted to add that the capacity for in, within St. Croix to do this work is very low. Like they don't have the, um, the sort of infrastructure really necessary to do the work that they know is deserving of that space, even when considering the sort of financial um, limitations that are set on the SHPO office that's down there. Um, and even when you have other organizations like the National Park Service, which runs on all three islands, um, I was able to sit down with um, one park member at the SHA who mentioned that a lot of the um, a lot of the resources and equipment that was stored on St. Croix were then moved to St. John, and St. John was hit the worst by the storms. So once that happened, it 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 just became even more of a sort of you know it became even more chaotic um, in that regard. So. Uh, I just wanted to throw in the, the part about capacity building, even within the space to do that work. It, that's definitely why the work that we're doing down there is so important because it focuses on um, showing, well, not really showing, but teaching folks who live there about the you know wider historic preservation process, it, not just buildings, but also archaeology so that they can then do the work themselves because as Ayana was just saying, there's not really CRM companies. There's not multinational corporation headquarters there that can come out. And, you know, in all fairness, there's not a huge amount of development that would really even need a lot of CRM work uh, on uh, the Virgin Islands. So uh, I guess maybe it's not, I guess maybe, you know, they're not um, neglecting the area. I guess it just has less work going on than many other places. But Definitely building the capacity there on the island to be able to um, field projects. I mean, that's definitely a, a goal of this work. Mm-hmm. And we can't forget also about the, the submerged resources that have to be reassessed as well and and all the effort and work that goes into that. And in terms of capacity building, you know how difficult it is 
to get Crucian archaeologists with the, you know, the lack of Crucian archaeology. It's even harder to get, you know, underwater Crucian archaeologists and train in that field. So, yeah, this is definitely a longer project that we're trying to, to span out to kind of fill some of these voids. Yeah, and that's another aspect of the uh, project there that, you know, we haven't really talked about. I guess we'll talk about in the next segment that it's not just terrestrial resources, it's also underwater resources. So, I, I mean, I know how to swim. <laughs> And I'm learning how to scuba dive. Uh, and I, I think I say a lot about knowing how to do archaeology. Now I'm trying to put it all together. And I'm finding, man, it is a lot of work to get all the certifications to be an underwater archaeologist and still have a normal life and not dive every single day. So I, I can only imagine uh, what it's like to be in St. Croix where facilities and infrastructure and all that other, the systems that you need to have scuba diving are not fully functional and then trying to still become an underwater archaeologist mm -hmm. you know i was just looking at the uh the nc uh, the national conference of uh, state historic preservation officers so i was curious and it looks like for that whole area there's just like one uh for the whole of the u.s virgin islands um, i wasn't aware that they like i was what i was going to ask you guys did you talk to any officials on st croix about um you know people that are working in the regulatory framework they're like well they still have jobs what are they doing you know what are they doing with their time as they're watching all this around them but there may not actually be anyone there from the sounds of it because <laughs> they're they're in st thomas <laughs> well, yeah on st croix they're they're not there and, and also you know i don't want to vilify the people who work for the shipo because they're you know they're doing work in an area that like justin was saying the money doesn't go directly to that island or or even the Virgin Islands, it's just going to that whole territory, and then whatever trickles out of Puerto Rico is what they get to survive on in uh, the Virgin Islands. But then to compound that was disastrous weather events, two hurricanes back to back, and then flooding and, and all the damage that's along with that. So, you know, I can't really, I can't really say the shipo there for the Virgin Islands is not doing their job. Um, but you know, we're here to help. So if they need help. We're already in the zone over there, and this is, you know, we want to help people as long as they want us to be there. So, Well, and I don't know how up-to-date the uh, this website is either, um, but it does say Acting Shippo next to the um, primary Shippo's name. So um, I don't know how long they've been the Acting Shippo, but they maybe they uh, got hit right as they were taking over this job and uh, as well. So that, that adds to the complication. Yeah, maybe the administration is in flux and then the disaster happens. So everything mm -hmm. is just kind of... Yeah, no, I, I know there was a recent retirement right, um, right. post-hurricane in that area. And, uh, you know, when we were down there, this past trip, the, the actual shipo officer for the island was off-island, um, in part because the conditions and then also because, in part because, of, you know, the holiday season. So there's really only one shipo officer for the whole island. And then when you talk about archaeologists on island in case, mm -hmm. you know, the water, you know, WA, or what's it, WAPA, the, the Water Administration wants to put in a water pipe. You've got one archaeologist, one cruising archaeologist on island that's responsible then for doing that assessment. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of challenges in terms infrastructurally that, that are important to address. And I think this, this post-hurricane environment will start to bring some of that to light in the wider gamut. Yeah. Yeah, there's one CRMer for a whole island. <laughs> well just even just financially i mean let's let's speak honestly here crm firms are uh are in business you know to make a to make a profit not just to make a profit but they're for profit businesses so they have a mandate to make a profit otherwise they can't stay in business so um 
thinking about that and keeping that in mind, if CRM firms were to look at going down to those areas and filling some of these gaps in what they need, who's going to pay for that? Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, that's the thing. There's not big development. I mean, there's no pipelines or highways or, you know, whole subdivisions being constructed. Like Justin was saying, people are living in historical buildings. Their businesses are in these, you know, two and 300 year old buildings. There's not huge uh, super Walmarts being constructed. So there isn't really a financial motivation for any CRM. I mean, the cost of coming from Connecticut or Reno or even Florida to there and doing the entire project and then coming back there for a few shovel probes, you know, most most people are not going to do it. The people who have to do it are the folks who live there on St. Croix because that's their community and they live there and it's economically you know, functional for them to do it. So we're, yeah, that's the thing. It's not like there's going to be huge CRM companies there because there's not enough money for the work. But then occasionally there is need for the work and there's no one there to do it. Okay. Well, we are going to take our final break of the show now and then come back and talk about some uh, specific work you guys did. You guys mentioned a state little princess. I hope we can talk about that in the third segment. And uh, in the meantime, uh, as I mentioned before, you can go to arcpodnet.com forward slash members to check us out, but also go to arcpodnet.com forward slash shop. We have actually a new store where you can get, you know, tote bags and t-shirts and sweatshirts and even pillows of all ridiculous things with the APN logo on it. So um, I don't know who would want that, an APN themed living room, I guess. I'm not really sure. But anyway, we'll be back in just a second with our third segment of the Serial Mark Podcast. Hey, podcast fans, if you want to check out some great designs, and we're going to be adding more as you probably hear this, depending on when you're hearing it, but uh, we've got a new association, and I say new as of January 2018, uh, with Public, and Public is a pretty great outlet for designers, uh, which we've got our own designs for the Archaeology Podcast Network, um, to get a pretty good return. Uh, a lot of places, they give you just like a dollar or two on a $20 t-shirt purchase, but um, T Public actually gives us a lot more than that, and it's a really great deal for us, and it's a good deal for them, and it's a good deal for you because we can have stuff in stock all the time. Um, check out our site, go to arcpodnet.com forward slash shop, and you'll see a link to the T public store where you can get t-shirts, uh, sweatshirts, you know, smartphone cases, laptop cases, pillows, even tote bags, all kinds of stuff over at that site. So check it out at arcpodnet.com forward slash shop. Okay. We're back for our final segment of the CRM Rock podcast episode 129. And we've covered a lot of things today. Um, one thing that was mentioned in the last segment is state little princess, Bill, why don't you start off by uh, telling us a little bit about that was, cause that's something you guys specifically went down and saw down there. And I, I want to hear more about it. Yeah. The estate little princess, as we were mentioning before is on St. Croix and I'm going to need Ayana and Justin to help me fill in the timeline and everything, but it used to be a sugar plantation. So, uh, St. Croix in the Virgin Islands used to be a Danish uh, colony hmm. until the 1900s, I believe. But uh, sugar production began there uh, in the 18th century. And uh, um, the state little princess, most of the buildings, I believe, date to either the 18th or 19th century. So um, I guess I should probably write a blog post about it. But the facility now is partial ruin and partial uh, rehabilitated historical buildings that are uh, administered by the Nature Conservancy. Mm-hmm. So Justin and Ayana were contacted or they reached out to the Nature Conservancy and have established uh, an archaeological project there. And it also has an underwater um, uh, 
uh, sustainability component. So the entire the entire project is to document do archaeology on this uh, national register historic property that has several buildings that are recorded and on the national register, but no one's really done archaeology on it. And then to um, try and discuss lifeways there, uh, specifically of enslaved Africans that were uh, in the slave quarters there on the facility. So uh, it's difficult for me to put it into words because there's so many different moving parts. But essentially, we're trying to do uh, an archaeology project that's rooted in the community to help individuals, crucian youth, and, and people who live on St. Croix connect with that aspect of their past, but in such a way that um, it helps them move forward into the future and, and have the ability to do similar kind of projects on their own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the Estate Little Princess, as Bill was said, it's an 18th century plantation site. Um, we believe, you know, the island was occupied earlier by the French and a number of other uh, colonial powers back and forth as they were vying for power. But the 18th century, the Danes secured the island and the Estate Little Princess was a, a fairly large uh, plantation site on the island in the 18th century that just grew and expanded and was actually into operation into the, to the 19th century and then continued to operate after slavery ended. So it's, uh, it's got a very long and rich history. Um, from the archaeology perspective, the thing that makes the site different is we didn't necessarily approach the island initially with a research question in mind and then looking for the site that filled that research question. But we established it first with the intent of doing this training program. So once we kind of outlined the training program for a maritime terrestrial component, we then went about setting up a terrestrial site with research questions that could be answered while also addressing some of the terrestrial capacity building that we wanted to to deal with as well. So the site is unique in the sense that, you know, we kind of worked from a different angle um, to, to establish it. Uh, but from there, it's it's grown and multiplied. So now, you know, we have, uh, I want to say with myself, Bill, Ayana, Alex, and Alicia, um, Ayana's going to finish her PhD this year. So we'll have, what is that, four PhDs on this one site, um, which is very non-traditional in terms of, you know, doing archaeological work. But from that, we've been able to have conversations about breaking that off into separate projects that we can both, that we can all handle and then also using it to break off separate projects for graduate students and then training for undergraduate students and high school students. So it's, uh, it's got a lot of moving parts. Uh, we got a lot of collaborators, junior scientists in the sea, chant. There's a wide range of organizations. Maybe we can put those in sort of the, the podcast notes so you all can see those. Um, but yeah. So my, my specific interest in the site, of course, being an uh, archaeologist and uh, having kind of a, I guess, mechanistic approach towards you know archaeology uh my my biggest question for the next summer is to kind of characterize the site uh, identify the locations where there are artifacts that date to uh the time when it was a, a colony so the 18th and 19th century and then identify intact sediment strata that have the artifacts associated with not just the, you know, we're not just going to dig shovel probes near the slave quarter. We're going to try to identify locations all throughout the uh, the parcel where there's um, deposits that date to that time period. And then um, add that to what we know about the architecture. So I think in the 1980s, a couple of architectural historians recorded the buildings that are there. And, and I think one of our, I would, I want one of our aspects in the, in the near future, if not this next summer, but maybe next year is to find architectural historians to reevaluate the buildings 
because it's been more than 30 years. So it's time to reevaluate not just the ones that are being used, but the ruins, the ones that are um, uh, just decaying. But then also um, to identify how the landscape has been changed by it being turned into a, a plantation. So uh, St. Croix, most of it has been deforested. Uh, it used to be a tropical island. Mm-hmm. But but all the, the activities that have happened during the historical period on the, the property have changed the landscape. And I think that collecting samples and analyzing stratigraphic layers will help identify, you know, not just places that, um, not just places that have artifacts, but also places that maybe uh, have been kind of intact throughout the historical period because the time when they were plowing and working there, most of that ground disturbance, even in the fields where they were growing sugar, uh, probably didn't reach down to the bedrock. So there's a chance there could be prehistoric areas, used areas, and then the location of this site kind of on a bluff overlooking the sea puts it in a good spot for uh, resource procurement. There was a freshwater source there too. So there's a lot of uh, questions about prehistoric archaeology that still haven't been answered. I mean, the site's got a lot of potential, and uh, Lord knows I know how to dig shovel probes, so we're about to do some of those, and uh, we're gonna see, we're gonna just see what we can figure out. I mean, this is, like I said, kind of a blank slate in some ways. No one's done archaeology there, so we'll just use the basic hmm. processual strategy, and then from there we can look at what we figured out and maybe move into more of a, a post-processual uh, approach to the site. Another aspect of the project there at uh, State Little Princess is really developing the uh, concept of sustainable archaeology. So I just talked about digging a bunch of shovel probes. <laughs> in, or- in order to get through the, the you know dense vegetation that's there, we're not going to do a traditional drive a backhoe and rip a hole in the forest because this is a nature conservancy site. Part of the goal is conserving not just the archaeology but the um, the environment too. So, like like I said before, we didn't have initially goals uh, research domains that were specifically about this, but kind of the project has lended itself into this new aspect of sustainable archaeology. So, Ayana, maybe you can tell us all a little bit more about sustainable archaeology as a praxis. Uh, sure. So, Justin and Donovan and I have been really conceptualizing sustainable archaeology, building off of scholarship from community-engaged archaeology that you see with Michael Blakey and Sonia Adelaide, um, to really think about a way uh, to practice archaeology that really centers sustainable practices through addressing environmental impacts and addressing capacity building within um, communities impacted by our work. Um, So thinking about Working at working alongside the Nature Conservancy, something that Justin and I really want to get involved in is doing coral reef restoration um, on the island of St. Croix in consideration of the sort of environmental uh, impacts that our work does. In addition to that, we're also thinking about um, how we can address capacity building within localized industries on St. Croix. So St. Croix has um, a huge... Um, diving industry. And none of the dive shops on island employ any um, Afro-Kerusian folks to do that work. Um, So part of the work that Jess and I have been doing with junior scientists in the sea with the Slave Rex Project and Diving with a Purpose is aiding um, 
uh, in the facilitation of um, scuba training for youth on island ages like 12 to 18 through a partnership with the Boys and Girls Club um, to really address avenues of accessibility into that um, field. Um, additionally, we're also addressing avenues into the field of uh, cultural um, heritage, tourism, um, environmental tourism, having our one week training that we have with the Boys and Girls Club be in conversation with the National Park Service um, and opportunities for career development in that area, as well as CHAN. I know Justin talked about a bit about them earlier, which is the Corrosion um, Heritage and Nature Tourism organization run by an eighth generation Corrosion um, woman, Frandel Girard, who's also in the um, in the sort of job of training youth on island to really be um, included and have a profitable sort of income and career within heritage studies on island. So our project really, as mentioned before, hits on a number of different points. Um, so thinking about environmental impact and sustainability in that regard and um, capacity building within localized industries all coming together to really create a really fruitful project. Yeah, and the, the idea is that if this is successful, that we can then take this model and transplant it into other, you know, other areas where archaeologists work or maybe archaeologists can take components of the project. Um, but I think that also, you know, this project is is feasible because of so many people that we have working together and in collaboration. I think without four PhDs on this project, it, it wouldn't work this way. Um, so I think that's a, another important uh, component to keep in mind. Most archaeology projects can't go to this scale because they don't have the capacity to sort of put that work in. But um, I think it's there's a lot coming forward that we're trying to do in terms of developing and expanding it further. Um, we definitely are working with the Nature Conservancy to sort of look into quarry restoration more, as Ayana mentioned. Um, and then also trying to see what levels can we get these youth to in terms of scientific diving or archaeology that can actually lead them into either programs at the University of Virgin Islands, working with Dr. Chinzira Kahina at the uh, Virgin Islands Caribbean Cultural Center, or in perhaps other fields off-island uh, if they go into archaeology or diving in the future. I, I think an important thing to say is not just that there's four PhDs, but it's these four. <laughs> because I think four PhDs in a room is, you know, I, it, it could either turn into um, lions trying to savage each other to death or or rabbits running in all different directions <laughs> with no transparency. Mm -hmm. So it's just the people that are there. But I do think that um, of the project, the academic projects I've been on before, this is the only one that ever addressed any kind of um, – rehabilitation of landscape or just even acknowledge that plants or the environment matters to communities. So, uh, you know, the people that live right there, they're using resources from the sea. They're living on the land. They're not just capitalists, but they're also uh, people who live in an environment. And this is the first project I've ever seen that, that come, you know, it comes from an academic, you know, zone of inquiry, but has added environmentalism into it, which I, I hope that if, you know, as I was mentioning before, bringing it back to the SHA and connecting with communities, perhaps maybe this will be the one that connects with environmentalism, uh, because I really haven't seen that in historical archaeology. And then just harking back to um, a point that Bill made about us being the four PhDs, soon to be PhD in my um, in my sense, doing this project, um, I think our engagement with um, 
academia in this academia in itself has really shifted how this project operates. Um, it's collaborative, not only with community, but like amongst ourselves um, as well. And that was something that came up really, um, I guess, distinctively in our panel discussion that took place the last day of the SHA. A lot of people in the audience wanted to know how exactly we were able to make this work. I think that academia often um, wants and strives for individualism, whereas between the four of us, we're having really intense and in-depth conversations along every step of the process um, and research design um, and forms that we use and classification systems and grants that we're going out for in ways we could write with each other, um, support each other, and then also having those conversations with our community members as well. So it requires a lot of, um, of time and commitment, but it's something we all signed up for. Yeah, we're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> so, in the it, Bill, in the last few minutes of this, uh, and Justin and Ayana, where do you guys, where would you like to see this go in the future? If all went to plan, all your, all, everything came to fruition, where do you want to see uh, this type of either collaboration or this project going in the future? Um, if everything were to go perfect, well, I was going to say <laughs> building on my overall scheme of global dominance, I'd like. I would like for this to be <laughs> template. The goal is for um, people of whoever ethnicity or whatever community to have a say in what's going on in the historic preservation of their community. And I don't care who you are. I'm interested in working with everybody because this is the step that's missing. That that um, consultation aspect of historic preservation is usually... Um, one low-level staffer showing up to the local high school gym and telling you how the strip mine is going to be built. There's not really a discussion about uh, community or anything like that. So I'd like for this to be a platform for everyone who works on this project, when this one is over, to do the same thing in another part of the country with whoever is willing, right? So I have a specific interest in African-American heritage. I am African-American, so that's, you know, right. That's, you know, on my mind. But I am not... Um, I'm not going to just close myself into one group and just only focus on helping them. I want to help community, right? Because I, uh, research is showing that diverse historic uh, neighborhoods and districts and communities and stuff are assets to communities. A super Walmart is not an asset. Another uh, um, condo tower is not necessarily a community asset. But keeping things, uh, a, a diverse mix of historical things, that's what adds uniqueness, interest, and increases tax revenue and, and supports communities, right? So I'm, I'm into that kind of game, but I'm into it now, not just rich people paying someone to write a national register form for their neighborhood, but people who live there actually having something to say. So along those lines, um, I feel like this is kind of a model that, you know, we all could work together and, and, and do in another part of the world. Or individually, we could get another team of uh, folks, community members, and do somewhere else. Or we could try to teach this model to other people because there's other projects going on all the time right now that don't have any of this nexus. And so I'd like to see this kind of be the template for the way academic archaeology works in the future. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, uh, you know, as he said, our main effort is to build localized communities. So whether for in our case, that localized community is Crusians in St. Croix. In another case, it may be, maybe, you know, Papua New Guinea, people from Papua New Guinea doing this archaeological work or people from rural Alabama doing rural Alabama archaeology. I think the idea is that if we can in, in do projects that empower the communities that they're based in, 
that's the ultimate goal of, of this type of work. And in the immediate for this specific project, we want to see youth diving, youth getting into archaeology, and youth having a better understanding of the relationship and the importance of cultural and natural heritage in their communities. All right. Ayana, any final thoughts? Um, yeah, I just echo both what Bill and Justin said, a community-centered project that really empowers community um, is the goal. And it's something that I strive to have in every project that I'm doing, if it's this future, this project now, um, and projects in the future. Okay. Well, that's all the time we have. I hope um, as you guys do more work down there, we can have you back on the podcast and maybe even back on the archaeology show, one of our other shows that's um, aimed at a little wider audience than than just CRM archaeologists. Um, so anytime you guys want to come back on, Bill, I'm sure you can uh, you can arrange it and we can get you guys back on the show to talk about uh, your, your efforts down there. Sure. All right. Thanks, Justin and Ayana, for coming on the show. Thanks Thanks so much for having us. All right. And that's it for episode 129 of the Sierra Mark podcast. As I mentioned, go to arcpodnet.com. Check out all the things we're doing there. And uh, we'll see you next time. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.arcpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at arcpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Adios. Bye. Bye. Later. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.